Hello, everybody. Jace here. Quick message before we get to the main episode. Uh, you know, I try not to get too political on the show. Maybe if that's something that really interests the guest, we might get into a little bit of politics, but mostly we're here to just celebrate comics. But uh, I can't ignore what's going on in the world, specifically the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. So uh, on our Twitter, pinned as the tweet, is a link to UNICEF which is an organization that focuses on uh, areas of the world where there is a lot of strife, war going on. Specifically, they try to provide clean water, medical care, and other uh, essential needs specifically for children and families. So regardless of which side of the fence you're on, whether or not you believe that one side or the other is right or wrong, uh, we can all agree that children and their families shouldn't be suffering for the choices that their leaders are making. So please, if you have a few dollars, uh, every little bit helps. You can go to unicef.org, that's U-N-I-C-E-F dot O-R-G, and just look for the Ukraine appeal. Click there, or you can go to the Comic Source Twitter account, and the link is there for you to donate. So uh, again, appreciate the support, everybody, and I uh, hope you're all being safe out there. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. Time for DC Spotlight for the week of April 5th, 2022. I'm back from WonderCon. It was a good show in a lot of ways. Very tiring show in a lot of ways, for sure. Yep. Back in quite a while. Uh, getting back in the swing of things. Guest list was a little light. Press opportunities were a little light. Uh, shopping was not light. Probably one of the better WonderCons for retail uh, I've yeah. been to. Um, so yeah, it was interesting. I'll show off real quick some of the stuff I got. I got this really cool Spawn Ninja cover. Uh, I got this uh, Bloodstone one shot that I missed out on a few weeks ago. It's a good book. Picked up uh, some Captain Americas to fill in my run. About four caps in the two nineties. Nice. Uh, final issue of Incredible Hulk, which somehow I missed on the stand back in the day. This is the first volume of. Hulk. It's green, so you're kind of seeing the background through. It's kind of weird. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I picked up a, a Chicken Devil exclusive signed by Brian Buccioletto. Booch was there. Nice. Um, and I also got this Chicken Devil. I don't know if you can see how shiny that is. Yeah. Oh, that chrome? Is a, that, is a, that is a metal cover. Aftershock oh, yeah. was far and away the be the biggest and best publisher that was there. Wow. I also got a metal, metal cover of The Dead Day. This is the same cover as number one, but metal. Um, nice. And it's been option for a TV show. So those are real limited. Uh, I didn't get this at the show, but I took it with me. This is my slots hardcover. Dan Panosian was there as well. So I got that signed. 
Nice. Uh, same same with this. Scotty Young was there, so I got my Middle West signed by him. Uh, picked up a few, three action comics for my action comics run. Oh, nice. Yeah. And then here's where it really gets crazy. Uh, Amazing Spider-Man 26. <laughs> Amazing Spider-Man 27. Yeah. Amazing Spider-Man 38. Wow. Amazing Spider-Man 62. I, I, I have a feeling your, your bank account may have felt that. Uh, Amazing Spider-Man 88. <laughs> and annual number two, Amazing Spider-Man. That's a Doctor Strange one. Nice. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Nice, so, uh, nice haul, right. man. That's good. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. I'm so jealous. Good show. Good yeah. show. Right on. Uh Anyway, we're back with uh, with a DC Spotlight. As I said, uh, kind of a lighter week. Ten books, but one of them is the Earth Prime, which is supposedly the, the CW Earth. There's a Batwoman limited series that's kicking off. It says there's an editorial note right inside the front, like first page. It says it takes place like after, I don't know, season three, episode seven or something like that. Yeah. I've not seen not one second of the Batwoman TV show. So I didn't read this yeah. because I have no context. Yeah, neither, neither have I. So, I mean, I, I suppose so, in fairness, we could have, I suppose we could have read it, but I don't know. It's just, uh, I just feel, yeah, I just it's don't, not, it's not my cup yeah. of tea. So I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm right there with you. I don't watch the TV show stuff and I don't really have time to be honest. So I don't know. I, I yeah, I, I feel the same. Like I could have read it to see, Hey, how, how is it? you know, how accessible is it for people who haven't followed the TV show? But the other thing was I was at WonderCon all weekend. I didn't really have a lot of time to, to read comics. So there's also a, uh, a reprint it's flashpoint Batman night of vengeance. Uh, and that reprints the three issue series that came out in 2011 during flashpoint that basically tells the origin of the Thomas Wayne version of Batman. So if you're not familiar, if you didn't read it back in the day, you can, uh, you can go check that out as well. So overall, I thought it was a, it was a pretty solid week. Um, I, yeah. I would go so far as to say there wasn't a bad book among among them. Um, maybe an average book. I, I, one of them I would put as – maybe two of them I'd put as average. Um, but the others I thought were all really, really great. So overall, strong week. What did you think, Rocky? Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I enjoyed um, – well, I actually – I would say I enjoyed three. Uh, I've um, – uh, you know what? I'm gonna slightly dis. I'm gonna slightly uh, since it was fifty fifty. I'll slightly disagree with you. It was. It was. I still. I still had my moments, but I was. I was a solid fifty fifty in terms of disappointed to being happy. So not you know, not quite on the year level, but uh, it's still. Yeah, there's, there's enough I there to keep say, me in. Yeah. Yeah. If I had to guess, I'd say Monkey Prince, One Star Squadron, and maybe World <laughs> of Krypton didn't do it for you, and the others were. <laughs> yeah. Were pretty. Uh, I actually, I actually didn't even mind Monkey Prince. I was very disappointed with Monk, uh, with actually, uh, well, we'll get to it with us. I was disappointed with Suicide Squad, and oh, uh, really, yeah, I've, I've, that's lost its luster for me. I'm still, I'm still pissed off about War for Earth three and Suicide Squad. Which just, <laughs> there's a whole slew of things that just still annoy me about that, but we'll, we'll, we'll get into it. But uh, I loved, I loved her story, and I'm sure you loved that too. And we'll, we'll be getting into that. I'm sure so. Yeah, definitely. Well, let's kick it off with um, 
Batman Beyond Neo Year number one. It's the first time somebody besides Dan Jurgens has been writing uh, the adventures of Terry McGinnis in, in quite a while. It's Colin Kelly and Jackson Lansing who are writing um, partnership. And I, they've done some DC stuff before. I'm actually a pretty big fan of their work. Um, I would say the one thing, it's a, it's a minor nitpick. You, it's not that you can't pick this up and read it and understand what's going on. But if you missed the Batman Beyond uh, story that we got in Batman Urban Legends number seven, yeah. you, you're not getting as much out of this as you as you would if you had read that. Uh, and there's even a note here saying, see Batman Urban Legends number seven, where Terry's last year ended. So, yeah, in, in that issue, we saw the older Bruce Wayne die. We saw the, the city of Gotham itself become sentient, which is a big part of this story. And um, th- this takes some pretty big time jumps. So it finishes off not very long after the end, uh, the end of the events of, of that story in Batman Urban Legends number seven. But then over the course of one page, we go from, and again, once Gotham becomes sentient, crime and, and the older Bruce Wayne is, is no longer with us, crime kind of goes haywire. And we're told through some dialogue boxes here, some expositional boxes about what's going on. And over the course of a page, there are uh, some panels that go all the way across. First panel's day one, then we jump to day 18, then we jump to day 37, then we jump to day 55. So it's like two months go by from the end of that story to really where uh, Lansing and Kelly want to start telling their story. Uh, but I didn't mind it. It made sense for me. I, I liked this new villain they introduced, the holographic man. I thought it was very, very interesting. Uh, kind of like a, a Lex Luthor type or a, um, a a Lincoln March type in terms of, you know, somebody who's who has pull, uh, not just physically, but also very intelligent and also seen as sort of a pillar of society sort of thing, you know, like a, like a Lex Luthor. Um, but then at the end, there's this other character that shows, shows up that's sort of reminiscent of the holographic man in some ways, but he's disguised and he has this sword that looks like it could be made out of light, hard light, like the holographic man. Yeah. And I think uh, he's called the sword. Is that his name? The sword? Yeah. I, I mean, they didn't call him anything else. So that's what yeah. I'm going on. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it was dynamic. It was fast paced. Uh, I thought the characterization was interesting. Um, if there's anything in terms of characterization that, that's a little light in a way, we didn't get a lot of Terry's voice, like a lot of his personality. Um, so I thought that was kind of interesting. I didn't mind it because I, it's more they're developing, introducing the villains, introducing the kind of the conflict, introducing us to, to Gotham City as it is uh, in its sentient form. And so I don't don't mind that they're setting that stuff up first before I think we're going to get a lot of Terry because we do t- Terry does give us some some thoughts here you know I swear Bruce I'll never stop fighting but it's not it's not any sort of de- it's all on the surface there's no kind of deep dive into w- what he's feeling and kind of his what his personality is I mean he's just the same old uh, Terry McGinnis we've always known because he seems older to me than that Terry McGinnis especially in the cartoon always came across as a teenager to me. He seems significantly older here. Uh, but again, I, I, I'm not necessarily missing it at this point because I think we'll get there. I trust these two writers to get us there. 
So I, I really enjoyed this, like more than I thought I would. I've never been a big Batman Beyond guy, um, yeah. but I, I really enjoyed it. Plus the the Max Dunbar art, the line work I thought was done really, really well. And the colors by Sebastian Cheng, absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. A lot of blues, uh, a lot of grays, which again, sort of suits the the world of Batman Beyond. I thought Cheng nailed it. Uh, Aditya Bidikar on the letters. There's a lot of letters here, especially holographic man when he talks, uh, when we see his kind of his logo and whatnot. Um, Bidikar gets to kind of cut loose. So I enjoyed that as well. Yeah, I, I literally nothing wrong with this comic. It was it was fantastic. So uh, what did you think? Well, I, I've never really I've never been a Batman Beyond fan. So I go into that bias and I'm like you. I'm pleasantly surprised. I was. I I did not enjoy at all the Batman Beyond, uh, pardon me, the Batman Urban Legends story, and I think this is a legitimate criticism. The peop- the fact that people are going to have to go spend ten dollars uh, to back to back to read this story that will explain to them because they're going to be wondering where the hell is the older Bruce Wayne because he's like a staple in Batman Beyond. He's the mentor to Terry McGinnis, the Batman Beyond, and all of a sudden they open up this comic book that Bruce Wayne's gone. He's dead. He's been killed, and the living sentient. Gotham itself has become a living sentient sort of city that is slowly creating a flat line of crime and sort of manipulating events. It has its own agent call, called the sword that you mentioned, this agent. Uh, Wayne Wayne Tech or Wayne Tower, I guess, is being, it's now Wayne Powers. It's being taken over by this, uh, you mentioned him, the holographic man who goes by the name of Donovan uh, Lumos. Uh, Lumos. Uh, uh, but having said all that, it's interesting. Um, and also, it's quite clear to me that I was actually intrigued not only by the holographic man, which he kind of looks cool. He kind of he's very egocentrical, nars- uh, ego- egocentric. He's narcissistic. He's 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 like everything that it's funny. The holographic man is Donovan uh, Lumos. He, he's probably what Bruce Wayne's facade was, but minus the Batman. And of course, he he controls Wayne Towers. And but I, I like Barbara Gordon's role here. She's Commissioner Gordon. So when Commissioner Gordon makes an appearance, but of course it's Commissioner Barbara Gordon. And it's interesting that Terry McGinnis is Batman Beyond. He doesn't want to tell Commissioner Gordon about he 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 doesn't want to tell anybody that that Gotham City is actually a living, sentient computer now. He doesn't want to tell Commissioner Barbara Gordon that because she's retiring. and She actually thinks that the reason why the crime rate's gone down is because of all the hard work she's done. <laughs> but the only reason the crime rate is flatlining is because of the efforts made by, uh, ironically enough, the S.W.O.R.D. and the sentient city of Gotham essentially wiping out a lot of the people that would normally be part of the crime. For example, uh, taking a lot of the drug addicts and killing off a lot of the drug addicts or deliberately supplying drug addicts with drugs. Uh, like there was like 8,000 of them and, and the and the Gotham, the sentient form of Gotham would determine that approximately 4,400 might die or something like that. And so it's that by, by getting rid of all the addicts, your addicts, drug addicts, you're going to be eliminating the possibility that they might commit crime. So the the crime rates staying relatively flat, that makes that so it looks that Gotham everything's okay in Gotham, but it's mostly because of those machinations behind the scenes of this living sentience of Gotham, and I my prediction is and and I think this is probably well played by uh, by uh, writers um, Danzig and uh, uh, pardon me, I dropped my piece of paper here. Uh, 
Sorry, uh, Colin Kelly and uh, Jackson Lansing. Uh, I think that it's clear that Commissioner Barbara Gordon, she's going to retire from the force. And once she retires, she's going to come back as Oracle. And she's going to be the mentor figure replacing Bruce Wayne. Uh, so I think that's where this is headed. So I'm, you know, I'm actually interested in this. This is actually well done, well written. I agree. And I agree with you. The coloring really stands out here. The coloring and the lettering I give you. Uh, kudos to Sebastian Chang on the colors. And I did uh, I did yeah, Batikar on the letters. Really great job, and Max Denvar on the art. So pretty good. Yeah, I, again, I, it's, Batman Beyond is not a series I normally collect, but I, I'm definitely going to be paying attention to this one. It was it was really good. Yeah. Uh, okay, up next we have Batman Killing Time number two. Uh, I, I mean, I enjoyed this, but there are I don't know if I want to call them problems. Um, but well, I'll, I'll let you go first, but let me get the creative team real fast. Written by Tom King art is by David Marquez colors by Alejandro Sanchez letters by Clayton Cowles. What did you think? Well, uh, I think that, um, <laughs> I think that Tom King for me, uh, and this is a problem that I have with Tom King whenever he writes Batman, I think that he's, he has taken what should be a very simplistic linear story and he has complicated the crap out of it. Uh, I can't believe how he's complicated such a simple story. The, the, he jumps back and forth through multiple timelines here. He'll go through, you know, he's juxtaposing this with some scene that took place 3,000 years ago involving the assassination of King Pentheus. And I think thematically he's trying to link that to this heist. He bragged about this being finally this killing time was going to be a heist move. This a heist comic book where it's going to be action packed, involving Batman, uh, a, a bank being robbed, and something that Bruce Wayne owns that's very important to Batman. He's going to be after it, and he's going to be after uh, Catwoman, the Penguin, and, and 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 the Riddler, and Killer Croc, and and in essence, it's that. But it's it almost plays like a, it's almost like. I feel like I'm watching like a really sell, a pretentious British mo- British heist movie where they they jumble up all the timelines and you got to be an astute viewer in order to sort of catch on to what what all the time jumps are in order to put the story together and that's part of the challenge of the movie because you know it challenges the viewer because it it, it jumbles up the time pieces. That's what this is to me. I got a little annoyed reading this because let me tell you something. I can now, I had to reread this three times and I can explain now in a linear fashion what happens in this issue. It's actually real quick. Uh, Selena Kyle, Catwoman, uh, typical of how Tom King writes her, always likes to get drunk with the Joker. In Batman Catwoman, Catwoman's always drinking with the Joker. He, they get drunk around a Christmas tree. They get drunk everywhere. In this one, Catwoman, in the past, at some point in the past, she gets drunk with the Joker because she hangs out with the Joker from time to time. The Joker tells Selina about one time he captured Batman. He injected Batman with true serum and asked Batman some questions and Batman confessed or told him some of his secrets. And the Joker shared some of those secrets with Selina Kyle and Selina told one of those, one of those secrets to the Riddler while they were inmates at Arkham Asylum and they want to go steal this thing that they, that, that, that the Joker told them about that he found out from Batman and that, and they put this heist together. They called a penguin. Penguin was the money man. He funded the heist. He was betrayed by the Riddler. They beat Penguin up. Penguin's in the hospital. Killer Croc helped out. He he robbed the bank. Killer Croc they thought they were there robbing for money. Killer Croc took the money, gave it to his girlfriend, Vera. Vera buys a bunch of jewelry. Batman follows, follows Vera, follows the breadcrumbs, interrogates Vera. 
figures out that Selena Kyle and Riddler are at this cabin out in the woods waiting for a buyer to come along. Who is the buyer? We don't know. That's how, how it ends. And, of course, we get these scenes of uh, Roman assassination 3,000 years ago, which thematically links to this heist tale. So, did a lot happen in this issue? Kind of, sort of. Do I think this could potentially be brilliant? Maybe. I'm intrigued because I took the time to read it and I appreciate it. I like this a hell of a lot more than Batman Catwoman. It is challenging to me. I'm going to give it a little bit more time. I do feel that Tom King is a little bit pretentious in the way he's jumbling up these timelines, but I get it. If I took the time to read it, in fairness, I could make sense of what was happening, although it did challenge me, but hey, I got to be up for a challenge once in a while. And so I got mixed feelings right now, so the jury's still out, but I'm still I'm still along for the ride. My fingers are crossed. I like I like by far I like the majority of what Tom King writes, so I'm certainly gonna stick this one out. I would love to be able to say that I I love a bat a Batman Catwoman heist story story and hopefully killing time is that, but right now I'm still on the fence. <laughs> oh, you're still on mute. Oh, sorry. Uh, so your complaint is the same as mine. Um, and I'm not necessarily, so in Batman Catwoman, yeah, the timeline jumps around, but there's no timestamps. At least in this one, the time jumps aren't as big and he gives timestamps. So you can't go put things in order, but he, he came on the show and said, I'm telling a straightforward story. He can't, I think he can't help himself. (laughs) He, He cannot help himself. Tom, if you're listening, dude, it's okay to go point A, point B, point C, point B. Once in a while, once every 10 projects, you can go in order. Because I agree with you, Rocky. It's 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 unnecessarily complicated. This is a good story. Yeah. It doesn't need – you don't need to jumble it around. You really don't. I, I was at WonderCon, obviously, this last weekend. Like I said, uh, I was on a – went to a panel that um, – there's a bunch of creators on, uh, one of them being Peter Laird, creator of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Scotty Young was on the panel, uh, Becky Cloonan, um, Karina Bechko, a, a couple of others. Mm. And Laird was talking about this director who was struggling with this movie he'd written, this, this mystery movie. And it was so paid by the numbers, he felt that it was really predictable. And he was struggling with how to make it better. And he accidentally dropped the script and the pages just scattered and went any which way. And so he picks them up out of order and he decided this is the order I'm going to shoot the film in whatever random order. I just picked up the, uh, the script pages right. and Laird said he used that on a, in a comic at, at a later time. It feels like that's what Tom King's done. He's got his <laughs> script. He threw it up in the air and then he picked up the pages and goes, okay, this is the order yeah. the story's going to be in. It's, yeah. it's, Tom, trust your trust yourself once in a while to just be able to tell. Like again, you said this was going to be a fun heist, popcorn, all that action. So the you don't need to make it more complicated just for the sake of making it complicated. I I can't at this point see any reason, and maybe it'll change, but right now at this point, I can't see any reason not to tell this story in a straightforward, linear fashion. Uh, we also didn't get any hints at all about what the mystery might be, what the the item might be. Uh, but I do have a guess. 
I think that maybe what was in that safe deposit box was Martha Wayne's pearls. I I guess it it could, but is it uh, when there's a scene where Selena Collins is opening up uh, a, what looks to be a a box that would normally contain a ring. If it is pearls, it, it's, it, it doesn't look like a necklace, but unless it's just one pearl or something, but in, yeah, in issue one, when the Riddler opens it, it's a much larger box. Oh, so okay, fair yeah, enough. It's, I, just, it's just a guess. I don't know. You know, I don't know if that's true or not. Well, I guess what? Why Mark is the box Mark, smaller now? Then it's weird. That maybe that's not the box. Maybe that's not. Maybe that's just something else. Selena stole. Maybe they stole multiple items. Oh, fair I enough. But I, I think the art by Marquez is fantastic. I think the color work is fantastic. I uh, love yeah. the the scripting. I love the you know the choice of of words, the vocabulary that King uses in the series. He's really becoming quite the master at setting tone with the kind of language he chooses. You know, he did that very well in Supergirl, Woman of Tomorrow. So for the most part, you know, I'm loving this. But I I agree with Rocky that there's no reason that this can't be told straightforward A, B, C, D. But, you know, maybe Tom dropped his script. Who knows? Yeah. And I'm I'm still really curious about, you know, how this this assassination of this uh, King Pentheus how this ties in with the storyline and if it's tied into what was stolen uh, because, you know, usually it, it really seems out of the blue. But uh, I'm uh, you mentioned something interesting when you said that well, the, the problem with these time jumps sometimes is that just when we get a scene where I'm really excited to see what happens next, it jumps and, we, and, and I, I lose the excitement created from one scene. And then I want to get back to that scene and it doesn't really go back to it. It goes back to slightly a slightly different scene. And, and there's a number of times where he'll jump to a scene that's three days before and then the next scene will be a day before that scene and then jump ahead. And then it, it, just, it just really seems um, just oddly, like just oddly disjointed. It doesn't, I was hoping this was, it's hard. I'm not sure how this can be at some point in an adrenaline rush of a heist or a chase issue of any kind if, if we're constantly being, you know, if time is constantly being, uh, you know, cut short and we're jumping all over the place, but, but we'll see. I mean, I mean, maybe, maybe the, in, in subsequent issues that, that will change this, the, the pacing will change. We'll have to wait and see. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, all right. Oh. Up next, we have a one star squadron. <laughs> this is one that's, uh, yeah, I don't want to say divisive but we we really kind of split on the last issue which i i thought it was improving and you thought it was either staying the same or, or getting worse um but I, I i feel like it's continuing to improve although it's no less depressing than it's always been uh anyway this is issue number five penultimate issue things lost in the fire written by mark russell steve lieber is the artist dave stewart on colors dave sharp on letters um a bit of a slower paced issue all takes place basically in the um, in the course of one night, with a little bit of, of flashback. The uh, heroes, what uh, heroes for you uh, headquarters has has burned down. Turns out it was arson. Uh, and what we find out toward the end of the issue, it's not bad enough that it it was destroyed. Uh, Gangbuster was in the building at the time and apparently has perished. So it's pretty, pretty harsh. 
everybody assumes that it's power girl that did it. Cause she just got fired. Um, led to believe that she was going to be taking over for red tornado, but then come to find out the board of heroes for you um, was just stringing her along and, and actually was trying to sell the company. And now that it's burned down, they're just, they're not going to bother to try to sell it anymore. They're just pocketing the insurance money. So all the heroes that work there are very distraught. And what we find out is that Minuteman was hired to do a grand opening. And that was all a front because Lex Luthor is there and he wants to pay Minuteman in both money and uh, Miraclo pills to spy on the other heroes. And in that moment, Minuteman, with everything he's gone through, gives in to temptation and agrees and then realizes, oh, man, I, I, maybe I can stop this sale from happening if I burn down the headquarters. Um, not thinking that it's going to cause the whole deal to be uh, to be called off. He's just trying to stop stop the agreement that he wants to back out of, basically. Um, but, yeah, inadvertently, he's responsible for the death of gangbusters. So a lot of angst, uh, a lot of bombshells in this one. I gotta. I, I I sort of think maybe I'm being too optimistic considering it's Mark Russell. I gotta think we're gonna find out Gangbuster wasn't in the. Cause there's, they didn't find a body. They just found his armor. Um, yeah. It's my understanding. So I have a feeling he maybe he's not dead after all. But this is still a very, very bleak story. Um, but it's also very real in a lot of ways. Very grounded from Mark Russell. Um, and he's saying a lot about the the futility of being a a superhero so kind of interesting from uh from that perspective so uh the steve lieber art i mean steve lieber is a fantastic storyteller um and the style that he's using here is again very grounded very real uh there's a lot of emotions in this issue most of them kind of negative and sad um uh, but it's still a, a very emotional issue so uh at the end of the day one issue left i don't know if i'm gonna like this series the way it all wraps up there's a part of me that thinks it's a series that you know well at at the end of the day the quality of it the craftsmanship of it might be quite high it's not something i would ever go back and reread but there there's any number of movies that i feel the same way about you know that are really good movies or you know emotional movies or you know have a big impact on the viewer but it's so it's so emotional. It's such a experience to go through it that, you, you know, you choose not to go through it again, whether it's horror or something sad or uh, emotional or what have you. So, uh, so yeah, I thought this was all right. Um, very curious to see how it's going to end. What did you think? Well, I, I think, uh, look, I've, I've, act I've been for the most part, I've been a Mark Russell fan. Uh, although, you know, not, not all of his uh, particular political parody Heretic approaches to comics have resonated with me, but he, he has a particular type of writing style, as does Tom King. And I'm, the reason why I'm bringing up Tom King is that the next time somebody tells me that Tom King treats characters badly, I'm going to say, have you read One Star Squadron? Um, just as a joke, because, you know, I mean, I can, you know, I generally enjoy Tom King and uh, I generally enjoy, uh, you know, Russell can ha has his moments as well. But I'm surprised, is, is anybody... Other than me going to be wondering what what kind of hero was Red Tornado here? He he gives an arsonist $50,000 and says, go ahead and go and hide. 
I mean, that's what he does in this issue. He finds out our, you know, he finds out one minute man, you know, started the fire, kills a man, you know, manslaughter, doesn't do it on purpose, but feels sorry for him. So he goes into the safe, gives him $50,000 and said, go, go start a new life. I don't know. Yeah, that's not what I don't even know. I don't, that, that's I not heroic know. to me. That's not heroic to me at all. No. And it, I, no. I get it. I, I, that's maybe it was building that, but sorry. I just, I just, I have to make that point that, you know, if you're going to, eh, I, I, I have a, I have a problem with that. I have a problem with that. And, but anyway, go ahead and make your. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that. I, I, <laughs> yeah. You're, you're, you're hundred percent right. I, I agree with you. I, I admit that I, I didn't think about that aspect of the story, but now that you pointed out, it's super obvious. And I would go so far. You called, you called him an arsonist. He doesn't, he doesn't give $50,000 to an arsonist. He gives $50,000 to a murderer. What? You know, I, I, I mean, yeah. I know you're, you know, you're a lawyer or whatever. Well, it's a man, it's manslaughter. He didn't intend to kill him. He didn't know it, but I mean, you're, yeah, you're guilty. But I, I mean, but it, just like when you use a gun well, certainly. In, in the, yes. and you kill somebody in the course of a robbery, it's yes. still considered murder. Agreed. Uh, this guy with with knowledge and and you know knowledge of forethought yeah. set that place on fire. Yeah. Taking the gas there shows that he didn't just show up and decide, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna burn this down on a whim. So yeah, the argument could be made that that it's murder. I mean, I get you know we're talking semantics here, but yeah, yeah. he's worse than an arsonist. My point is he's worse than an arsonist. And you're right, Red Tornado. It's one thing to tell him to run, give him fifty grand, and tell him to run. Yeah. Yeah, no, I just no, no. Again, I mean, this this is sort of in keeping with the 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 plotting, depressing nature of this story. This is just a depressing story all around. I mean, Red Tornado is he's resigned himself to the fact that Power Girl's going to get blamed for it, and he finally finds out who really did it. Uh, but he's going to let him get away, One Minute Man get away. But you know, probably they'll figure out One Minute Man ultimately did it, and Power Power Girl will be exonerated, and then. I guess I don't know where the happy ending is going to be. I just is I, I'm not. I don't know what the point of this is. Like uh, I, this is this is just a relentlessly depressing tale. Was was that the point of this? Is that this is so depressing? It, maybe I think maybe you're right. Maybe uh, uh, Jose will be found to be uh, Delgado will be found to be gangbuster will be alive. Maybe that will raise some spirits at the end. So one minute man will be caught with fifty thousand dollars, but gangbuster will be alive, uh, and he'll get or one minute man will will turn will turn himself in probably to redeem himself, and maybe that it'll you know that that'll happen or something. And I I don't know, but it just it seems to me you know at least when Tom King, <laughs> for example, <laughs> when Tom King does what he did to Guy Gardner in Human Target, I just it's out of continuity and it's, it's, it's a great story. Like I can, it's out, you know, it's a great story and I can really enjoy it. And I don't really care about Guy Gardner, but at least it's a, even if I did care, at least it's in a really great story with fantastic art and it's, it's going somewhere. So there's a mystery. I find with one star squadron, there's nothing to get excited about in this story. There's no mystery. There's no, what's this story really been about except Red Tornado being depressed and broke and a bad businessman. And I, I just, this, this story has nothing to back it up when these moments happen. I just, I just, I, you know, and it's not, it has its moments of humor, but not enough of them. So I don't know. I mean, it's, uh, and I would think that if there was ever an audience for something like this, who knows these characters in the past, it's me and guys like you and me who are lifelong DC fans. And yet, 
I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, I don't know if I want this kind of depression in in my comic books, but but here we are reviewing it. So, anyways, I'll stop ranting. <laughs> yeah, uh, you, you brought it. I was I keep kept meaning to ask you because you weren't able to join me on that episode with Guy Gardner getting killed. I kept meaning yeah. to ask you. Uh, yeah, I don't think you were ever able to put out your own episode on that. Yeah, so. no. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I, I did. I but I had some tech, technical problems. I I didn't mind it at all. I it, it didn't bother me at all. In fact, Tom King just recently tweeted about his tendency to do that, and he talked about out of continuity tales, and he's and you know he he basically the long and the short of it is that he's just gonna he he writes them, and if uh, you know they're out of continuity, if you don't like them, you can discard them, and if you like them, well then maybe one day they'll become in continuity. I mean, who knows? But I think that's a healthy approach to it. It it is black label, and that that. That story, I love. I love that human target story. It doesn't bother me. I've never been a Guy Gardner f- fan anyway. Yeah. I, I, don't I get me wrong. But yeah, I did too. So I loved it. I, it was so unexpected. Yeah. It was so unexpected. It came yeah. out of nowhere. I thought it was great. Yeah. that. Yeah. To me, that human target is the best book in the last 10 years. It's so good. Yeah. It's, no, it's I, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> Couldn't happen to uh, a nicer anyway. guy. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, anyway, let's move on uh, to the next book. It's Suicide Squad number 14. It's called Defunded, part number one. Dennis Hopeless is the writer. So that's, uh, I don't want to say unfortunate, but man, uh, it was so good when Robbie Thompson was was uh, writing it. So we'll see if we're still enjoying it as much with Dennis Hopeless. Uh, Eduardo Pansica and Julio Ferreira do the first half of the book, pages one through 11. Then Dexter Soy does the back half, 12 through 22. Jeremiah Skipper colors the Panseca Ferreira stuff. And it's, so just so you know, so Eduardo Panseca does the pencils. And then Julio Ferreira does the inks. Jeremiah Skipper does the colors. Dexter Soy doesn't do pencils. He probably works digitally and goes, you know, directly to digital inks. And then his stuff's colored by Peter Pantazis. And then Wes Abbott letters the whole thing. So... Did, well, uh, I did, did you notice that uh, Thompson is credited as the writer on the cover, on the on the A cover, and then on the B cover, it has both Thompson and Hopeless, and then on the inside credits, it only mentions Dennis Hopeless as the writer. I did not notice that. Yeah, there, there's a difference. So I don't know, like if you look at the inside credits, it just says Dennis Hopeless is the writer. It does not mention Robbie Thompson, even though Robbie Thompson is mentioned on the cover, and both cover A and B. But Dennis Hopeless isn't mentioned on cover A. <laughs> so Yeah, if I had to guess, just... I would say, uh, I mean, Thompson was so involved. You know, he's the one that brought them yeah. back. He's the one that wrote the Suicide Squad Future State stuff. So he's, it's got to be at least coming from a co-plotting perspective, I, I would assume. Uh, yeah, I just, I think it's just, you know, the irony is that it's, I wonder if they, I wonder if they identified the proper editor on this as well. Uh, there's just there's just all these little hiccups with DC <laughs> lately, but in any event, let's let's review this comic of which I will vent a little bit about. <laughs> yeah, go go right ahead. What are your thoughts? Well, well, uh first of all, I I'm getting really frustrated with Ambush Bug. I'm but you know, he's he always makes a wonderful narrator, but he's starting to get a little bit annoying with me uh annoying to me. But I wish they kind of take him off the playing field. But regardless, uh, coming off, I wasn't a big fan of how War for Earth 3 ended. Waller, Amanda Waller has taken Earth 3 out of the multiverse. So Earth 3 is now its own multiverse, apparently called Earth Zero now. They called it at the end of War for Earth 3. 
confusing, didn't make a lot of sense. But in any event, now now Rick Flag and Rick Flag comes back to I guess Earth designate zero, and along with him comes Bloodsport, along with Bloodsports, hundreds of Bloodsports brothers that were scattered throughout the multiverse, and because Amanda Waller. Because some deal he made with Amanda Waller, she would save all his brothers. But for some reason, which it's not clear to me, suddenly all his brothers are were transported with Bloodsport on Earth Zero. So now Bloodsport has all his brothers, all his different iterations from different areas of the multiverse, now live with him, now live with Bloodsport in his house. And none of them seem to care. None of them seem to mind. They they seem to care more about whether or not the, there's enough coffee in the house and arguing about the bathroom. Then none of them are asking the type of questions you would think they would logically ask, like why are we all here? How come all the people around me look the same? Like it's just this feels this feels rushed, convoluted. This feels just messy. Uh, it's this this story is called defunded. Rick Flag now is running the squad, but. He right away, just like Rick Flag nonsensically destroyed the Phantom Zone projector at the end of War for Three, which could have, which made no sense because they needed it against Ultraman. Uh, now he destroys, he destroys once again. I mean, he, he destroys the mechanism that would have, you know, that can control the bombs in their head. Uh, and he's he 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 needs to give the. They need something to do, and. Um, I get the strong sense that Dennis Hopeless here, or Robbie Thompson, co-writers, whatever's whatever the situation is, I feel that I feel this this comic's directionless now. I, I really do. Uh, Talon ends up dying, so Calebra, uh, Talon ended up being killed in War for Earth Three, but he, his ghost followed them back to Earth Zero. Uh, but he 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 finally dissipates. So William Cobb now, the Talon, he's now he's he's now officially, I guess, gone because I can't don't believe he can come back. And Rick Flag basically sends everyone on their own little uh, sends Rick Flag on everyone on their own. They got their missions, and they all fail at their missions. So the three missions that they fail, they uh, the, he sends um, um, he sends uh, Peacemaker and Ambush Bug to try to uh, to try to retrieve all some extra clones of Connor Kent, and they only managed to obtain one clone, and they. Uh, he also, and then he sends that that Rodriguez character to try to obtain uh, some some weapons cache, uh, uh, sort of a, a bunch of weapons, and, and she fails. They, he sends Mirror Master and Celebra to steal the Mind Dancer gem from Moneymaker Mannheim, and they they fail to do that. And so by the end of this issue, it's come. Rick Flag's Suicide Squad has completely failed, other than just getting obtaining one. Another another clone of Connor Kent because they need to replace they need to replace him because they lost C- Connor because Match the old clone and is is the new Superman of Earth three that is now no longer in the multiverse and Bloodsport now is trying to get along with his thousand brothers that are living in the same house as him and at the end it's just decided that Rick Flag decides well we need money so we need to get funded we have no money. I don't even know if they work for the government anymore and they have this master plan that they want to basically kidnap Lex Luthor. That's their master plan at the end. And this this just feels directionless to me. You know, it's funny because I, I was so excited about, you know, I, I really thought this, this series started off so well. But this, 
I really thought they were headed somewhere that they had a game plan. War for Earth 3, the way that ended, told me that they didn't have a clue what they were doing. I was a mess. And now, and now, I, like, Rick Flagg is a complete idiot. You know, uh, all of the Suicide Squad members, uh, Bloodsport, uh, Peacemaker in particular, tells Flagg, you know, at least Amanda Waller knew how to win. And, and it's true. But this feels like they're just making Rick Flagg out to be an idiot. They're, 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 they're writing Rick Flagg wrong. This is bad characterization. Rick Flagg's not this stupid. He was too, he, he's not this, he's not an idiot like he was portrayed in War for Earth 3, like he would actually destroy the Phantom Zone projector because he's mad at Mando Waller, please. And now he's portrayed like an idiot in this particular issue coming back. I just want some more competency in these, in, in these, in these characters. And I just, I, I don't know. This is this is this is doesn't bode well. This doesn't bode well. This it's, it's, this feels everyone seems to be a joke here. And I don't even like what they did with Deadsport or Bloodsport with all his brothers. I'm not even sure what the point of that is. This feels directionless. It needs a game plan, and I'm not sure what the plot is anymore. And I'm not sure what the point is anymore. So I I don't know. Do, do you do you have a better handle on, on on this title? Or I mean, you you must have been happier with it than I am. I'm assuming. I loved it. I thought it was so much fun. I thought it was great. Um, not least of which there's only one page of Amanda Waller, not actual size. Uh, you know, I'm not an ambush bug guy, but I, he's been so fun throughout as this kind of breath, breath of fresh air, this levity. Um, you know, in, in defense, I'm going to actually defend Amanda Waller here for a second. So hold on to your hats, everybody. Uh, I think that as capable as Rick flag is as a field general, he's not so great at running things behind the scenes and that's sort of what makes this such a mess. And I think that's purposeful on the part of hopeless and or Thompson. Um, I don't know. I mean, they, I think for the most part they failed on their, their missions, but did you think that that peacemaker and ambush bug were stealing Lazarus resin? No, they were stealing the, I thought they were stealing from the warehouse, all the other clones of match of Connor Kent. That's the impression I got, because they were. Mm. Uh, I, I stand to be corrected on that. Maybe I maybe I misread the scene. Uh, I don't know, maybe maybe I did, but but they said something along the lines of, of, you know, or Rick Flag said something along the lines that they have a plan and what they're stealing, you know, is necessary. I, I thought that the match clones were the were the guards of what they were of the Lazarus resins, basically. So I well, thought they, they were stealing they, Lazarus. No. Yeah, no, they were breaking the the clones broke out of. They were stealing coffins. They were seeing stealing the coffin canisters, and you can see in this scene here that I'm showing that the clones are breaking out of their containment vessels. Oh, right? you're right. Because yeah. they they were loading them up on the truck. All those all those containers those that contain the cloned aspects of uh, yeah, right. of, of of Connor Cannon, but they were escaping. But they only end up with one, and because ambush bug. Peacemaker kept telling Ambushbuck to teleport them away, get them out of here, but he kept one of them. So they so they so they managed to keep one of the clones for themselves, which I think is just a fancy way, a cheap way for the writers to replace Connor Kent that they lost in War Four or Three. Yeah, but, you're right. You're right. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, <laughs> but anyways, but I mean, it's not a it's yeah, you know again. There was something that that um that Rick Flagg said that made me think that they were they were trying to basically bring um, Talon and Calebra back to life. Um, so I, I guess we'll see. But 
Yeah, I didn't. Uh, you you know you mentioned Rick Flag breaking the thing that controls the bonds. I love that. Now they they don't. Nobody has to stay there. They don't have to work together if they don't want to. You know, there's no longer that leverage. So, yeah, yeah is it messy? Yeah, it's messy. Uh, but I think that's kind of the point. Uh, and I I don't know. I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was fun. I'm curious to see how this is going to go without Amanda Waller calling the shots. Although I guess in a lot of ways we know how it's going to go because the series has been canceled. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, but I am, I, I think the series, even though this is Dennis hopeless as, as a writer, we don't know how much Robbie Thompson is involved. I think it feels consistent with what the whole series has done. Interesting. It's almost like DC is choosing to do um, almost what you'd call standalone seasons for suicide squad, right? Like we just had the Tom Taylor one, which mm-hmm isn't really connected to this one at all. And now we've got this one. Um, yeah. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Well, I, much like justice league, we're probably not going to get another suicide squad series until dark, dark crisis is over. So we'll see how that plays out um, in the long run. But, but yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, I, I will say that much like I always say, <laughs> uh, I wish either, Dexter Soy or Eduardo Penseca did all the line art uh, because again, their, their style is just not that close together for them to be sharing a book. So uh, anyway, let's move on. World of Krypton number five. This is the next to last issue of this episode written by Robert Venditti, drawn by Michael Avon Oming, Nick Filardi on colors, letters by Hassan Otsman Elhow. I'll talk about the art for, there's a few times for the first time on this series, there's a few times where, Avon Oming's art kind of bugged me. Um, it pulled me out of the story a little bit. So uh, I don't know if he's rushed or something else is going on, but his storytelling is as strong as ever. The guy's always been a fantastic storyteller. But there's a scene where Kara Zorel walks into her father's laboratory and he's still trying to find a survivor zone, you know, someplace they can send the Kryptonians that's not the Phantom Zone. And I, I, I don't even know how to describe it. She looks like a, like an old school bobblehead almost like her head is yeah. way out of proportion to her body. And her face looks like, like a middle-aged person. And I, I, it, like I said, I was reading it and I, I had to stop and like, Whoa, what happened there? So uh not sure what happened, what happened, but yeah, the art in this one is not quite as sharp as, uh, as it's been throughout the series. Um, that being said, you know, it's the story of Krypton. We know how it ends. It's like reading a story about the Titanic, you know, uh, you know, the boat's going to sink. We know Krypton's going to explode, but what Venditti does a great job of is, is providing context and angst and particularly context. Uh, and, and really maybe the most sort of human and relatable, situation for the falling out between Jorel and general Zod. So I appreciate that. He's bringing that to the table. Uh, so yeah, overall, this is a, this is a pretty solid series. Um, you know, we've talked about it before world of, world of Krypton for a new generation. Um, this isn't going to replace the, the classic uh, John Byrne written Mike Mignola world of Krypton for me. And that's only because of when I read it, you know, I read that story when I was like 12 or 13. Um, so to me, that'll always be the kind of the defining way that I think about Krypton. Uh, plus that, that series was brilliant in that each of the 
issues was kind of a standalone. And then you jumped forward hundreds, if not thousands of years sometimes. So it covered a much longer timeline. This one's a little more intimate and smaller in scope. But again, it's dealing more with the emotions between the, the House of El and the House of Zod. And I think it's doing that quite well. So uh, what do you think, Rocky? I, I I thought it was okay. I, I wish I, I think it focuses too much on the world of uh, on the House of Zod, to be honest. Now I say that knowing fully, I, I'm aware that the House of Zod is very important in the, the ultimately in in the in the story of the ultimate destruction of Krypton. But I thought that was uh, I thought that was kind of fairly obvious and overplayed. I would have liked to have seen more focus on Kara. Uh, a little bit more on the rest of Kryptonian life. Uh, it's issue five of six, and we haven't even seen Brainiac appear to take uh, the Bottle City of Candor. Uh, so that maybe that'll happen in the NAS issue, in the in the final issue. A couple of things that stand out here is uh, I, I want to emphasize the difference. What Robert Venditti is doing differently here, and I wrote this down. Laura Jorel confirms to Laura that he's known for six months that Krypton is going to is going to be destroyed. This the, this this issue is called Past the Point, assuming pa- meaning, of course, past the point of no return. Krypton will be destroyed. He's known for six months, and Jor-El has told nobody. Nobody. Are you kidding me? Instead, Jor-El has focused on his anger with Zod. Zod is focused on being angry with Jor-El. They're blaming each other, and ultimately, these two men are flawed, and they both have... Unfortunately, I actually think the way I, the way I'm reading this story is that both Jor-El and Zod, uh, at least through the eyes of Laura, his, his are they are angry with each other and they're not putting aside their anger toward toward each other. They're not putting that aside for the betterment of Krypton. Uh, shame on Jor-El, not saying anything for six months. What was he doing? Uh, I'm sure he had maybe a motive. He, he could tell himself all he wants. He had a motive of not telling the people because he didn't want to cause more strife, etc., etc. Meanwhile, Zod is literally sending tens of thousands. We don't know how many, but at one point in time at the beginning of this issue, he mentions potentially apprehending 18,000 ordinary citizens that just happen to be... I mean, they're literally protesting, holding up signs saying, let us live, for God's sakes. And he transports them to the Phantom Zone. Meanwhile, Zorel, Zorel's brother is trying to look for a survival zone because the Phantom Zone is too crazy. The Phantom Zone um makes makes people go a little bit nuts and insane at least it did in the first issue Zorel wants to find a survival zone but i'm thinking look put him isn't it a put him in the phantom zone anyway wouldn't you rather go to the phantom zone than face utter destruction and Zorel's known of the phantom zone for 6 months obviously he's known the krypton he's known for 6 months that krypton's going to die and they're they're not they six months of wasted time here. You really see the tragedy of all this, that for six months, Jor-El knew all this and didn't do anything. I am actually found myself angry at Jor-El. And of course, Zod I'm angry at for just being a, a... I don't know what Zod's hoping to accomplish, arresting everybody. And anyway, he's actually... He's not... A, in my view, Zod is ironically enough doing the best thing. He's sending people into the zone where they're going to be protected from the destruction of Krypton. So what if they go a little bit insane? They can heal once they're released. I mean, unless unless Robert Venditti is changing the rules of the Phantom Zone, being in the Phantom Zone isn't that bad, is it? Or is he make, is he trying to make it worse than what it's been established in the past? I mean, Monol of the Legion of Superheroes spent thousands of years in the Phantom Zone, a thousand years, and he came out okay. 
So I don't know here. Uh, another thing here is I think Robert Venditti is giving Laura is giving Laura, Jorel's wife, more agency here because at the end of this issue, it is Laura that begins looking to the stars for a home for their unborn son. It's Laura that looks for Earth, not Jorel. Because in previous incarnations, it was Jorel that looked that that looked up to the stars to find a home for young Kal-El. But in this case, I think it's Laura. So I like that Robert Venditti is giving more agency to Laura herself as because she's always Laura's always been more passive. Even in all the movies, Laura's always been sort of passive and sort of like the the good wife of Jorel. Here she's got more agency, she's got more action, she's she has a little bit more I, I think to say in, in this story. And in in many ways I think she's more level headed uh, than Jorel and Zod and she's she's the conscience conscience of Krypton itself and which really helps to heighten the, the tragedy of the ultimate destruction. But overall I'm actually um uh, I, I'm a little bit, uh, anyways, I'm, I'm happy with it. I'm frustrated with Jor-El and Zod, but in a way that magnifies the tragedy of the story of Krypton. And uh, it's going to be interesting to see if this becomes the new canon, because I think that there's some significant distinctions here and differences in the history of Krypton that could be significant if relied upon farther down the road. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, okay. Up next, and I, I will say that I, <laughs> I got to talk to Gene Luen Yang at WonderCon, and that was that was a lot of fun. He's really excited about the Monkey Print series that he's doing with Bernard Chang. Bernard Chang was there also, and I went by his table a couple times to say hi because I've Bernard's been on. Uh, I know him. Every time I went to his table, he wasn't there. So bummed <laughs> out. I didn't get a chance to say hi. But anyway, uh, Monkey Prints are up to issue number three of this limited series. Written by Gene Luen Yang, Bernard Chang is the artist, Sebastian Chang does the colors, Janice Chang is the letter, uh, letterer. This is getting better and better. Um, you know, when I when I talked to Gene, one of the things that I expressed to him was how it's kind of fun to be exposed to the, the myths and the uh, lore of, of different cultures. I know nothing about Chinese Um not to say that, you know, you could learn a ton from this, but there, there's a little bit. You can learn a little bit. You know, Monkey Prince isn't like some, uh, you know, original idea. It's it's drawing on a lot of the uh, mythology that exists in, in uh, Chinese culture and throughout Chinese history. So uh, I'm enjoying that. I'm enjoying how they tied that. They tie that in with the Penguin, how they tie it in with Batman. Um, Marcus is a fun character as much as he's kind of struggling to get a handle on his powers uh his parents are are kind of fun comic relief i think the art by bernard is some of the best work he's done in a long time plus i really appreciate the color work of sebastian chang here we are again uh, praising sebastian chang's color work uh really bright vibrant colors in this one which helps to sell it as this you know traditional superhero comic with uh kind of a, a youthful zany feel so I wasn't sure what to think of this when I first started reading it with the first issue. Uh, but it's one of those comics where it's a good example that just reading one issue doesn't give you a um, inaccurate feel for the book. You got to read at least two, if not three, because um, some, especially first issues are so hard to write. So having given this a couple of issues, I'm having a lot of fun with it. So uh, one thing I would say, if, if this were to become an ongoing 
or if they were to have another volume, I would like to see Monkey Prince outside of Gotham, only because it feels like having Batman here is a little bit of a crutch. Um, not for the writers, but more like from an editorial standpoint, like, man, we're worried no one's going to buy Monkey Prince. I know, we'll throw Batman in there. He, look, he'll even be on the, the cover of issue three so we can get people to try it. Um, I get it, you know, Batman sells. Monkey Prince probably on his own wouldn't <laughs> necessarily. So throw in a, a crossover. But hope, hopefully, like I said, if it does so well, why not um, take him out of the shadow of Batman, take him out of Gotham? So uh, what did you think, Rocky? I, I enjoyed it. This is absolutely the best issue so far. I, I, I wasn't really on board for the first two issues. I had a I had a hard time getting accepting the fact that this monkey prince is a is a character that people are gonna like. I actually thought the character was a little bit poorly conceived, to be honest. And then everybody keeps telling me it was just sheer by majority force. I feel like the kid pressured in. It's like everyone's telling me, no, 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 no. This is exactly you know this is a this is a mythology from another culture, and so I just you know from sheer osmosis of everybody saying, no, you should like this and you should like this. I'm giving it a chance. I'm giving it a chance. Finally, this issue, things started to come together a lot more. This issue had everything. It had action. Uh, it had romance. It had, uh, it had f humor. It was, uh, finally he's learning his powers. He's learning his powers. He has a confrontation with Robin and, and he's, he confronts his bully and the, the, the sister of the guy who's bullying him at school is the girl that he has a crush on and it's, and ultimately she ends up having a crush on him. This, and this is all in one issue and, and the penguin itself, the, his parents who are actually criminals. <laughs> I mean, the monkey prince's parents are criminals who work for the penguin. The penguin ends up being the gold horn king that, that gold, that gold creature that the penguin turned into ended up being the gold horn king, which is, he's linked to, he's the gold horn king apparently in the mythology of the monkey prince is the enemy, one of the enemies that the monkey prince was ultimately given powers to combat, to fight. And it's also revealed that other young men have become monkey princes as well. It's hinted at here in this pigsy character with by the pigsy mentor character whose name I can't remember. But in any event, uh, I'm starting to get behind it now. I'm starting to understand the hue. You know, I, I mean, understand it. I mean, it's fun. It just it's not something I was used to. And it's just it just goes to show you that you can teach an old dog new tricks, and I'm I'm enjoying it, and I'm I'm glad I'm glad because I I straight up full confession I would not have picked this up. Uh, it's only because I'm reviewing it with you uh, that that I I stuck with it, and I'm glad I did. This this was an enjoyable issue. This was actually you know I I quite enjoyed this. I ended up reading it a number of times. It was actually enjoyable, and I'm if this is. Uh, it's a limited series, I guess. I don't know. Is this six issues long? It doesn't really say. It says limited series. Yeah, but it, say, I, I think it's six issues, but I'm not 100% sure. Yeah. But uh, I, I like. I really like the fact that his parents are criminals. I really like that. That is a pretty cool angle on it. I mean, a hero whose parents work for the Penguin or uh, who have worked for different members of Batman's rogues gallery. I think that that's an interesting way to, to actually pull the mythology, mythology of the Monkey Prince into Gotham while at the same time keeping uh, keeping Batman out of it. I kind of like the fact that they just use Damien in this issue just sporadically. He sort of popped up and even Damien had a sense of humor in this issue and I, I thought it was very well done and the colors just pop off the page. It was a uh, 
it was uh, well drawn, uh, enjoyable to read, and yeah, well written. Full props. Yep, agreed. Uh, okay, up next we have Batman number one twenty two, uh, and there's actually a, a a backup in this one as well, which I thought was in- interesting, and I also wasn't sure. Uh, I couldn't remember what issues Chip Zdarsky was supposed to start on, but he's not. It's not there yet. This is a tie into Shadow War, so it makes sense that this is still written by Joshua Williamson. The backup is written by Joshua Williamson as well. Uh, the art and the backups by Trevor Hairsign. Colors are by Rain Barreto. Letters are by, <coughs> excuse me, by Willie Schubert. Uh, but the main story is um, by the same artist that that typically does the uh, Deathstroke Incorporated. We have Howard Porter on the art, Tamea More on colors, and Clayton Cal on letters. Now, I, I for me, this is just a personal thing. Howard Porter's line work is a little heavy handed when it comes to Batman. I typically like my Batman art to be a little more free flowing um, just because he's a character that relies so much on movement. And when you get those big, thick, heavy lines, it it doesn't convey in my mind, a sense of movement. Um, But again, this ties into shadow war in a way, not a lot happens here. It feels like a little bit more set up. We do see Talia and Bruce have a kind of a, a heart to heart. Bruce thinks that Talia is behind the assassination of Roz and Talia seems to convince Bruce that that's not the case. Uh, my theory when I reviewed Shadow War Alpha was that Roz himself was behind it, but I guess we'll still, I guess we'll see. We still don't know who the Destro clone is at this point. Um, but we do get to see a little bit more of the, the real Slade and Respawn, who, again, Rocky, you didn't get to be here when uh, it was revealed that Respawn is basically a genetic clone of both Deathstroke himself and Damian Wayne. And so it kind of leans back into that story that Christopher Priest wrote oh so long ago when somebody was trying to trick Batman into thinking that Damian was – Slade Wilson's son rather than Bruce Wayne's son. So, uh, again, it opens up a ton of story. And when we had Christopher Priest on the show a few months ago, he even said he was like, he he really fought for that because he felt like having Damian Wayne be the biological son of Deathstroke opened up so many interesting storylines. Doesn't mean that he still wouldn't be like emotionally the son of Bruce Wayne after everything they've gone through. Um, but biologically, if he was Slade's son. So in a way, that's what we're getting here with this with this Respawn character. So like I said, a lot of setup. Batman's clearly investigating the the death of Roz. Um, this is a relatively short crossover. It's only five issues, so we'll see how that all plays out. Um, but again, it's it was an enjoyable issue, a little bit on the setup side, and I guess we'll we'll see how Shadow War continues to play out. What are your thoughts? Uh, yeah, it it, it 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 felt like a setup issue. Uh, what I really liked about it though was just how action packed it was. It felt like it moved very, it it moved quickly, but it felt like a story was being told. I was excited for it. I love the fact that Batman's investigating. I mean, you can imagine. I mean, Batman is pissed off. I mean, how could Rosal Bill, Rosal Gill, was killed on Batman's watch? I mean, Wayne Tech Satellite was looking over the entire thing, according to Batman, and and somehow that you know whoever killed him, presumably he believes at the time Deathstroke, uh, 
but somehow they they got through all the all the the defenses that were set up in order to prevent the uh, the very assassination that they you know <laughs> that ended up happening and but somehow Deathstroke got through Deathstroke of course we all know from because those of us chances are if you're reading out Al- Shadow War here Alpha Alpha War you're you're reading uh, if you're reading Shadow War you're reading all the DC books by Joshua Williamson. You've probably read Robin. You, you've, you, you're reading Robin. You're reading Deathstroke Incorporated. Those of us who are, we're all the better for it because we know that Deathstroke Slade Wilson, he's tied up with his own secret society of supervillains. He knows that the great darkness is coming. He's got his own machinations that he's working on. He had nothing to do with the death of Ra's al Ghul. And so, Ra's, so he is absolutely shocked when all of a sudden uh, Talia's... Leviathan forces are attacking him, so he he's not expecting this. Uh, the Secret Society of Supervillains they're not expecting this, and uh, unfortunately, I mean the they're very very powerful. One of the things that Joshua Williamson did at the at the end of Shadow War Alpha is that he showed all of Talia's forces, and um, there's there's many there's a lot of these like C and D list characters from from the Talia's past from Batman's past that I didn't really know the name of they at the on one of the final pages of of the opening issue of this of of Batman's Shadow War Alpha it shows all the forces that Talia is using that he's gonna that she sends against against Deathstroke here and this is secret society and the society of uh, super villains and you really see what they're up against and uh, this is quite exciting now it's it's interesting that uh, what Talia says. Talia is actually wounded. Talia was was wounded uh, by whoever shot Des- uh, whoever shot Razagal also shot Talia. But Batman is smart enough to know that Deathstroke doesn't miss because Batman talked about seven seconds being between when Razagal was shot and Talia. There's no way Deathstroke would have missed Talia. So Batman already has perhaps doubts that the slate had anything to do with it. But and so and he, and he basically he's at some point he's going to convey that to Talia. Talia is wounded. Batman is wondering why aren't you using Lazarus Pit? Why are you wounded? Of course, Talia doesn't tell Batman this yet. But we know that the Lazarus Pit is poison. There's something wrong with it. It was one of the things. It's one of the reasons why Razogal was dying and why in his dying he knew that he couldn't resurrect or heal himself with the Lazarus Pit anymore. It was too dangerous to use. So we know that the Lazarus Pit is compromised. We also know that Lazarus Resin is being used from multiple places in the Suicide Squad and, and has been used at different by different forces around the DC Universe, Task Force C. You got to wonder, how, how are all these things linked? What is actually going on? Who's the ones really behind the scenes? Who really killed Ra's al Ghul? You hinted that maybe Ra's al Ghul is, is still alive and it's all part of some elaborate hoax. Uh, we'll, have, we'll have to see. It's a hell of a hoax if he's doing that. It's uh, even Batman asked that question, but in any event, it's interesting here. This ends with Batman kissing Talia, which is uh, nice to see. I mean, Batman, I mean, it wouldn't be Batman if he didn't get a little tail on the side. I mean, I'm sure he's got to do something to piss off uh, uh, Selena, but why not? Selena's uh, routinely start, r- routinely drinks with the Joker, and if, I, if she does that, why can't Batman go and have some intimacy with Talia? But I digress. I enjoyed this. A good adrenaline rush. It's put. I, I wish more people were uh, checking out Shadow War. I hope they are because I think it's well worth the read. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. Uh, as far as the backup, not that much to it. Uh, basically, uh, it's 
said in the early days of Dick Grayson joining Batman as a sidekick, somebody's put out a hit on Robin and Slade has uh, taken the contract and gotten a ton of money. Uh, so, okay. <laughs> the, hint, <laughs> the, the, the implication is it's the Joker that's put out the hit. Don't, you know, with only eight pages, the first part of the story, it's hard to see what the point of it is or if it's going to be any good. So your mileage yeah. might, may vary. Anything to add about the backup rock? Well, I, I'm wondering if it's somehow going to thematically or some story-wise tie into the main narrative. Batman's Batman and, and Slade Wilson have a long history together, both as enemies and at, at times as allies against uh, various forces. And so... I suspect that I, I suspect that uh, that history is is what we're being reminded of here in this backup feature because it should be noted that the backup feature itself is also written by Joshua Williamson. So I can't help but think that there must be a purpose for that, and that I'm I'm sure it's going to tie in and helps explain some plot points because at some point you know that Batman is going to realize that Deathstroke is not the one who did this, and and probably his manner of Figuring that out is going to have to do with his knowledge of who Slade Wilson was in the past. That might play a role in that. That might play itself out in this in this backup. So, but I I, I like the backup and I really like the art by Trevor Hare uh, scene. I thought it was uh I thought it was really I thought it was really good and uh, I like the dialogue. It was well written and as you said, it does appear that maybe it was maybe it was the Joker. Uh, whether it's going to be Deathstroke versus the Joker in the next backup. So uh, it's interesting. Yeah. I, I, I trust in Joshua Williamson. He's the one stable at DC right now. He, he seems to be firing on all cylinders. So fingers crossed. I think this, I think this story, I think this shadow war is getting better and better. Man, trust in Joshua Williamson. Yeah. How far we've come from the days of Williamson's flash and Tom King's Batman. That's exactly right. Or, God forbid. Either one of their work. All right, on to the last book. Maybe maybe we've saved the best for last year. Certainly, uh, we waited a long time for this first issue of this book to drop. Now we have issue two dropping. It's Wonder Woman Historia, the Amazons. Kelly Sue DeConnick is the writer. Gene Ha is the artist. Wesley Wong handles the colors. Clayton Cowell on letters. Wow. Uh, what'd you think? Um, <laughs> I, I really enjoy this. Um there's once again like i will say this unlike the the first issue there's this issue i thought was a little bit uh was less it, this was a little easier to digest i loved the first issue i loved it what i mean is that the first issue i i had to reread it i and i wanted to and i enjoyed it because there was so much to digest and and i uh know nothing against gene ha and the art here but the the first issue had art that's sort of like had a level of detail that just blew me away. And between the art and the exposition in that first, in that opening chapter, that opening volume, it really captivated me here. Uh, here we're dealing with uh, the story continues. And this is really the, the origin. This is how the Amazons are formed. This is, this is Hippolyta who has sort of escaped her, her captors. She has, she has, this is the story of how the Amazons came to be. And, and Athena, and uh, the story here, it's so masterfully told because these six tribes of Amazons that were created by the goddesses 
uh, out of their almost the resentment of Zeus and the fact that Zeus created that mankind was really about that it gave too much agency to men as and not enough not enough protection and reverence and the same type of agency or equality of of, of opportunity even to the women and and in any event that's how the goddesses perceived it and so they created the the six tribes of the amazons but in the meanwhile the the mortals the uh, the the six tribes of amazons are immortal but the Amaz- but females women who make up the earth they're mortals they're not amazons because they're mortals and so this is the story of the, the first you know the first amazons and of course the first amazon would be Hippolyta and how how did Hippolyta meet the Amazons how did Hippolyta you know you know she that entire story is what plays out here and she meets ultimately Artemis the god the, the goddess Artemis uh, approaches Hippolyta and Hippolyta has a, a wish she wants to be an Amazon and that's her and she makes that wish and she makes that wish to Artemis herself and Artemis tells her well you know you can make that wish but it's a it's a it's a wacky kind of alchemy in order to become an an amazon and so artemis essentially gives a hippolyta uh antiope's horse and sends her off to to where she knows these human traffickers these slavers will be and hippolyta ends up meeting antiope a- after witnessing the uh the 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 amazons kill kill these uh, slavers these slave traders and and then the story branches out from there and it's beautifully told and how this story of all these uh, hippolyta and all the as, as they begin as they begin to accumulate and save more women hippolyta says the antiope i want to be an amazon and i want to follow you because once once the slavers are are killed you know, Antiope and the rest of the Amazons are going to leave, and Hippolyta is saying, "Look, you can't go. I want to come with you. I want to be an Amazon." And she's saying, "I'm not a, you know, you know, I'm not a shepherd." And Antiope says, "You know, I'm I'm not your shepherd." And and then Hippolyta says, "Well, I'm not I'm not a sheep. You know, I mean, you're going to leave us here. I mean, you you have the sanctity and the safety of wherever it is you go. And you're going to leave us here. Where's our safety? Where's our protection?" And and the way that the manner of which that story is told. Especially when we know that the backdrop, when we know that the backdrop is, is this war or this, 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 um, conflict between Hera and Zeus that ultimately Zeus becomes aware of at the end of the issue through Apollo and one of the worshippers of Apollo. When you know that that's in the background here, these Amazons always move at night. And the reason why the Amazons always attack and and protect the women and and attack the men at night is because during the daytime that's Apollo Apollo controls the daytime and Apollo of course is one of the male gods who's as chauvinistic as Zeus is and they, they want to hide their 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 doings as much as possible from from Zeus and they know it's inevitable they're going to be found but that's what they do ultimately what they are doing is discovered and uh and Artemis, well, ultimately Artemis uh, intentionally ends up killing a young boy, uh, even though the Amazons let a young boy live, even though the young boy was trained to be a, would grow up likely to be probably an evil man or or a, a very uh, ne'er-do-well individual. The fact is, is that 
you know, Philippus and the Amazons had the wherewithal to not to not kill children and that children might be influenced by men, but, you know, maybe when they get older, we'll put the sword to them, but they, they deserve a chance to become better. And so they show, the Amazons show mercy, they show compassion, they show kindness. Uh, but ultimately, Artemis the, is the one Amazon who uh, ultimately decides to take action herself and in I think as an act to intentionally antagonize and get the attention of Zeus, she ends up killing this this young boy, intentionally get Apollo's attention, who lets Zeus know. And so this issue ends with Zeus, you know, basically declaring war on the Amazons. You know, he's going to unleash hell upon them. And the the real question is, how can these? Is it possible for these Amazons to now? coexist on earth because Hippolyta forms a seventh tribe of Amazons worshipping all of the other goddesses of the six tribes and the seventh tribe of Amazons uh, Hippolyta is appointed the queen by consensus not by combat not by cunning not by intellect but by consensus I guess uh, democratically voted for by the rest of the other women in her in that would ultimately make up her seventh tribe of Amazons so much to unpack here, so much that we can talk about. Uh, art's fantastic. Gene Hutt does a fantastic job. Absolutely beautiful. It's 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 it sets the tone for the story it wants to tell. I think it I think it complements uh, Phil Jimenez's art. Nice. It's it's not quite as uh, I mean, to me it's almost. <laughs> They're just different artistic styles. Phil Jimenez probably is would probably be my first choice, but this is really Gene Ha at his best. I actually have an original print. I have I have an original a piece of uh, art from Gene Ha that I actually won a auction for at a comic con of a of an Aboriginal of an Indian sitting on a rock reading a comic book. It's absolutely beautiful. I won an auction at the Calgary Comic Con back in two thousand and eight at the beginning of Gene Ha's, uh, when he was much younger then. But in any event, uh, I love this. So much to unpack. Could, we could easily do a, a separate video on this. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it also. Um, I was just looking through it now. I, are you sure it's Artemis that kills the boy? I thought it was Tarpia. Uh, she has horns on, right? That's not Tarpia. That's Artemis. The one with horns? Yeah, I thought the one with horns was Tarpia. Tarpia. Uh, no, Tarpia is the... Uh, uh, Tarpia is the girl that uh, was going to kill the boy, but Philippus stopped her. I can show you that. Okay. I mm, no, yeah, right I mean, when you see the at when you see the axe about to fall. It says stay your yeah, hand, Amazon. Right. And she has the horns on her head. Right? Isn't that Artemis? Oh, I mean, isn't that Tarpia? That is Tarpia. Well, wait a minute. Yeah, just a minute here. So so yeah, Tarpia I mean, then at the end, is that Tarpia? Okay. Yeah, you might be right. I yeah. sound corrected there. Um, okay. Okay. I thought I missed something. Wait, yeah. That, so, uh, so yeah. Interesting way to bring the conflict back around. Um, yeah. But it, I mean, the reason I make that distinction that it wasn't, it wasn't Artemis is because again, you're talking about the folly of, of humans, 
right? I won't say the folly of man, but because this is a woman that makes the choice. The gods are smart enough to, like you were talking about, remain hidden, only go out at night, all that sort of thing. And then it's, you know, the folly of a human to kill this boy while the boy's praying to Apollo that eventually is going to lead to uh, lead to the conflict. So I, I really enjoyed that. Yeah. The other thing about the, the book, because I, I agree with a lot of what you said in terms of the scope and, and all that. And this really is the origin of the, you know, the tribes and we get all that information, which I think is fantastic. Uh, but if the first one with the incredible art from Phil Jimenez felt big and epic in scope, this one is more about kind of narrowing down the story in a lot of ways and, and focusing it down to what are the repercussions of the choices that the female gods made in the first volume? What are those real world repercussions as it pertains to human women? Uh, so you're talking about taking these big ideas that still are very personal. I mean, these female gods were fired up. They had to have been to take the risk to go against Zeus, to make the choices they, they made to, you know, do what they did in the, in the first issue and establish these tribes. But what does that mean in the real world? What does that mean when, you, you know, we're talking about women who are being enslaved or being exploited, being trafficked as property? So it goes from this big idea with sort of these abstract concepts from these very powerful beings all the way down to a much more intimate story where we're, we're talking about real world consequences. You know, these women, as you said, they, the Hippolyta becomes you know, the leader of their tribe and they keep repeatedly saving more and more women from these slavers. And okay, where are we going to be safe? How can we remain hidden? Uh, you know, these are practical problems that are arising from the choices that these goddesses have made to defy Zeus. And what, you know, where do they go? How do they sustain them? How do they feed themselves? Um, how can they keep going as tribes? There's that conversation between Hippolyta and the, and the goddesses about, yes, we will worship you. We will devote ourselves to you. And the goddesses are like, yeah, but you're mortal. Like, yeah, we are mortal, but w whatever amount of life we have, we will, you know, devote it to, to worshiping you. So I'm sure that's where the, the idea of them becoming immortal is going to come in. So uh, interesting place to end it uh, because it is sort of right as things are, are ratcheting up in terms of um, conflict in a lot of ways. So we'll see how that plays out in book three where Nicholas Scott does the art, which, Oh my God, I can't wait to see. Um, also, if DC doesn't green light, you know, more issues of this, then they're just, that, that's just ridiculous. That, I mean, how yeah, can she, you not? Yeah. She has a nine, nine volumes is planned if right. they approve it. So that's quite, that would be amazing. Yeah, exactly. So they better, they better approve some more. Uh, and as far as Gene Ha's art, it, it sort of echoes what I'm talking about with the narrative, how we got these beautiful flowing images with all this detail from Phil Jimenez that felt very ethereal and otherworldly, especially with the way the colors were in the first issue. And now with this one, it, with Gene Ha, it's more grounded. It's more sort of based in, in reality. We're seeing, again, the, the narrative consequences of the choices the goddesses have made and how they're choosing to guide human women. But we're also seeing that in terms of the tone of the art, how this art is much more realistic, much more grounded. You get a lot more emotion. 
there's a lot of uh, character in the faces of these women that are being rescued from the slavers. Uh, Hippolyta especially is very emotive. So yeah. Um, I don't there, think there's, a there's a phrase here or uh, pardon me. There, there's an image here that I'm showing uh, where he's, Gene Haw has drawn trees on top of a mountain and it looks like a woman's face, doesn't it? He does yeah. that multiple times. I was going to point it's, that out next. Yeah. It's just incredible. Uh, Sorry about that. I didn't yeah. mean to. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I was going to say that there's no doubt in my mind that this is Gene Haw's best work that he's ever done. Uh, and, and it's not really close. So yeah, I was going to point that out that there are several times where in, in the course of the, the foliage that he draws, there are faces, there's the page that you are pointing out. And then there's another one. Um, trying to find the page. I think it's later when uh, Hippolyta is talking about um, where, you know, where they're going to stay and, and all that sort of thing. Um, again, there's, a, it's, yeah, much later. Let me find the page. Um Oh, there's no page numbers, but yeah, it's when they were talking about um, what they're trying to be and the one uh, they've just rescued the, the women from the, the slavers and, um, and the boy has been spared. So the, the page where Philippus stops her, mm-hmm. if you go to the following page and look at the bottom panel, Well, boys, uh, keep going. Yeah, go to the following page. Now the bottom panel there. Oh, up oh, too far. Go back up one page. See the bottom panel in the middle, just to the right of the word oh, balloon. Oh yeah, yeah. So yeah, he does that several times, which to me is more like, you know, almost like Mother Nature herself. Oh, you know, overlooking these these women yeah so again best work of gene ha's career in my mind it's not even close um yeah it's absolutely fantastic i man i can only imagine what nicola's art is going to look like uh so yeah it's great i mean I, i can't see dc not green lighting another three issues of this it's so good one of the things that um uh, one of the just as a as a side comment, w- one of the things that I find is a missed opportunity is that if there had been just I think better synchronicity between the trial of the Amazons and this series. I know this is a series that's black label and technically in its own continuity, but with this sixth tribe of Amazons and Hippolyta forming the seventh tribe of Amazons, you know we have three tribe of Amazons in the mainstream DC universe. It would have been nice to have seen maybe some callbacks or some history, some of this historia, some of these hints reflected in the mainstream Wonder Woman title. That's just me. I just, you know, I would have, I wish there would have been a little bit more editorial um, cohesion there. Just, just for something for the fans. But I know that's just maybe expecting a little bit too much. But I think that historia is something that I really do think it's going to be something that future writers at DC writing Wonder Woman they're going to take it and they're going to go with it and they're going to build on it because Kelly, uh, you know, so much has been uh, Kelly Sudaconic, so much that she's written here can be expanded upon in, in so many myriad of different wonderful ways that if DC doesn't take advantage of it, they're insane. 
Yeah, they very well might be if they don't green light more of this. So I guess we'll wait and we'll have to wait and see. Uh, so that's going to do it for the uh, individual episodes uh, or issues, rather, everybody. Don't forget, there is that Earth Prime Batwoman number one that ties into the TV show. And then if you didn't read the, the Flashpoint Batman uh, miniseries the first time around, all three issues are collected in one uh, in one issue. It's called Flashpoint Batman Night of Vengeance, number one. And we do have some collections Robin Volume 1, The Lazarus Tournament, has a trade. So we were talking about you know volumes or seasons of Suicide Squad. The Suicide Squad Bad Blood trade paperback. That's the Tom Taylor, Daniel Samper version of Suicide Squad. That has a trade paperback coming out today. Also, the Shazam, the four issues of the Shazam mini. Uh, Shazam to Hell and Back trade paperback, where Shazam and Dane go to hell. Uh, written by Tim Sheridan. That collection is out today. And then Mr. Miracle, the source of freedom gets a hardcover. Um, and I apologize that I haven't been able to have Brandon Easton on. Uh, we keep circling. Uh, he's just super busy, but I wanted to have him on to, to drop that <laughs> uh, interview the same day the hardcover came out, but it, it just didn't work out. But anyway, Rocky and I were both really surprised how great that series was. Um, you know, Shiloh Norman, Mr. Miracle, I, He's not what I think of when I think Mr. Miracle. I think Scott Free. But we were both really impressed with what uh, Brandon Easton did there. So, uh, anyway, any other episodes you got coming up this week, Rocky, that you want to tease? Uh, I don't know. Uh, at this point, no, I'm still pretty busy at work. Uh, I, w- I wish there was. I, I might I might do a Rant and Ray video. I might dive in a little deeper with Historia. Um, I'll have to reread it again. And uh, I've been enjoy, I, you know, I've, I've enjoyed it, and we'll, we'll see, we'll, we'll see. I, but I, I'm gonna say probably no, just to be safe. <laughs> what about you? You, you got any interviews coming out? Yeah, there's one that dropped yesterday with David Walker about his current Zoop campaign. I have any number of uh, people that I talked to at WonderCon that should be coming on soon. Also, I'm going to be talking to Kevin Scott. That'll drop later this week, probably right on Thursday. On. Uh, about Titans United, as well as his series that's returning from Vault called Shadow Service. So that's coming up as well. Uh, and then we should be getting back in the swing of things on the Spawn Daily. Kind of have fallen off that a little bit with all the traveling uh, I've been doing. And I do have travel for the day job coming up uh, as well. So got to do that. And then we we have to figure out a time to review the last issue of Clear, which was so, so good. Oh. So good. So we'll try yeah, to make well. that happen sometime in the next couple of weeks. So well, yeah, uh, again, we everybody, we, yeah, we yeah, can probably we do appreciate that. You, uh, appreciate you listening as always. Don't forget to head over to YouTube. If you're listening to the audio only search for Rocky's channel, it's comic space, boom, exclamation point. Give this video a like ring the notification bell and subscribe. So you know, when new stuff comes out, conversely, if you're checking us out on YouTube or, or found us over there, uh, or if you have found me at WonderCon. If I gave you, I gave away a ton of free trades and uh, signed stuff, including a Blu-ray DVD of the Captain Marvel um, movie. It was signed by by Kelly Sue DeConnick, Speak of the Devil. Uh, anyway, I gave a, a bunch of stuff and lanyards and all that. And so if you're listening for the first time because you, you met me at WonderCon, please go and subscribe. Your, go to your favorite podcast platform on your smart device or uh, your favorite podcasting app on your smart device and just subscribe. All that. You know, following Rocky's channel, subscribing to me, all that stuff increases uh, our footprint, which helps us get more access to talk about 
more comics and have more creators on and that sort of thing. So we really appreciate the support, everybody. We wouldn't do it without you. And we'll talk to you next time. See you later. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.